Brother Russ was sharing with me this morning that he passed by a church building going into Sacramento down in the Rancho Cordova area. The name of the church was First Covenant Church. Russ said, well, I don't want any part to do with that. And I don't either. If they, if they knew what that First Covenant represents... That's the old covenant, that, that covenant of works, that covenant that's under the law. And we just sung that song. Jesus Christ has set us free from that. He has provided a perfect sacrifice for the sins of His people that enlightens us to the fact that Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. And he washed in white snow. Brothers, Sisters, listen. Not one thing can be laid to the charge of God's elect. We're free from the law. The law has no hold whatsoever on a believer. Those who are led by the Spirit of God are not under the law. We're under the law of love to Christ. We're under the law of Christ, but not the law that was given to Moses on that mount back way back yonder. There's a curse pronounced under that law of that covenant to those who do not keep the law perfectly. But Jesus Christ has set us free from that curse, being made a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Aren't you thankful? Aren't you thankful for the redemptive work of Christ our Savior that has made us acceptable in God's sight? Oh, how thankful we should be. Turn to Isaiah chapter 11, if you will, please. We're going through this book in a verse-by-verse study, and it's just been a rewarding experience for me. I trust it has been for you as well. As an introduction to this morning's message, I want to read an article by Pastor Charles Pennington that's in this morning's bulletin. And in reading it, in reading his article, I want to stress a very important truth that all of God's ordained preachers are very well aware of, and most of God's children who've been enlightened by the Holy Spirit are aware of this as well, and if they're not, they will be as they grow in grace. We're aware of this truth that the Bible from cover to cover speaks about Jesus Christ, His redeeming work for His own chosen people who were given to Him in Christ before this world was created. And the Old Testament is full of types and shadows and pictures of the coming of Jesus Christ and His perfect redeeming work, the shedding of His precious blood that paid the ransom price in full for all of His elect, His substitutionary death that satisfied the holy justice of God for those Christ laid down His life for. All our iniquities were laid on Jesus Christ And our suffering Savior endured the wrath of God in our room and in our stead. We are free from the wrath to come. And Pastor Charles Pennington illustrated this very truth in this article I am about to read in your hearing. And he used a passage of Scripture from Genesis 45 to draw our attention to the One who loved us and gave Himself for us. So, Follow along with me as I read this article he titled, Christ the Greater Joseph. Pastor Pennington said, After Joseph revealed himself to his brethren in Egypt, saying, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. 
He sent them back to their father with specific instructions of what they were to tell him. That God had made him Lord of all Egypt, of all his glory in Egypt, and all that they had seen. It is instructive and comforting to note that they were not told to tell their father what they had done. Not even their sin of selling Joseph into Egypt. Nor is there any indication that it was ever brought up in the presence of their father or by Joseph. It is even so with the greater Joseph, our Lord Jesus Christ. He graciously, lovingly, and savingly reveals himself to his brethren with their sin in full view. But he not only forgives our sins, he forgets them. They will never be brought up in the presence of the Father. His blood so thoroughly and completely cleanses us from all sin that God remembers them no more. He presents us to the Father holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. And all of His brethren speak of what they have seen. Him, Christ our heavenly Joseph, and His glory. (laughs) I hope that blessed you. The Old Testament is just full of the Gospel. One foolish Bible college professor audaciously said that Christ is not in the Old Testament. He's as blind as a bat when it comes to spiritual things. I told my wife just a couple of days ago, the Lord's Apostles got their text for their messages from the Old Testament. Just imagine how thrilling and how exciting it must have been for those enlightened saints of God to hear the gospel preached by those early New Testament preachers as they went into the Old Testament and proved that Jesus was that very Christ. The one that was crucified is the one that all the Old Testament prophets spoke of that should come, that would come, and He did come. And He fulfilled all of that which was written concerning Him in the whole of the Old Testament. So follow along with me as I read our text. Isaiah 11, verses 10 through 12. It says, And it shall come to pass in that day, no, and in that day there shall be a root of Jesse which shall stand for an ensign of the people. To it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to recover the remnant of His people, which shall be left from Assyria and from Egypt and from Pathros and from Cush and from Elam and from Shinar and from Hamath and from the islands of the sea. And He shall set up an ensign for the nations and shall assemble the outcast of Israel and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now I've titled my message this morning, The Outcast of Israel. We read that term in verse 12. Let me give you the meaning of the word outcast. It means to push down. It means to chase, to drive away, to overthrow. Abel was an outcast in the eyes of his wicked brother Cain. 
Noah and his family were outcasts in the eyes of a world of ungodly people. All through the history of man, God's chosen blood-bought people have been hated by the ungodly, unregenerate people of this world, pushed down, driven away, outcast. Things haven't changed in our generation. Those who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. We're outcasts in their Christ-hating eyes. When God delivers one of His chosen blood-bought children, we don't have to ask our ungodly friends to remove us from their social list. They'll be glad to do that for themselves. They don't want us in their presence. But God Himself is gathering His outcasts, those who are hated by this world under the preaching of His gospel. So let's look at these verses. Verse 10 says, And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse, which will stand for an ensign of the people, to it shall the Gentiles seek, and his rest shall be glorious. Now we took a brief look at this first part of verse 10 last Sunday. And in that day is a prophetic statement concerning the gospel age that we have been in ever since Christ came into this world and finished the work our Heavenly Father sent Him to do. The root of Jesse clearly points to Jesus Christ. The ensign, which we'll look at a little closer, Lord willing, next week, The ensign is the banner that flies joyfully over the heads of all of God's enlightened children. That's pointing to Jesus Christ. His banner over us is love. It is to Him and only to Him the enlightened saints of God, Jews and Gentiles of very small remnant, will seek. And we seek Him because He first seeks us. We read in the book of Romans, the third chapter, I think it is, there is none that seeketh after God. In our unregenerate state, we don't want God in our hearts, in our minds, in our thoughts, in our presence. We don't want Him. We hate Him. There's enmity there that cannot be taken away except by the power of God the Holy Spirit when He gives us a brand new heart. And that old nature is still there and will rear its ugly head in a moment's notice. His rest that we read about in our text is the rest of Jesus Christ. And it's glorious. It's so glorious that it just cannot be put into words how glorious that rest is. And we experience that when we enter into His rest. Now as a footnote, God's preachers know our text is referring to the Gospel age. This isn't speculation. This is clearly set forth in the holy inspired words written by the Apostle Paul in his epistle to the Romans. We read these verses in the book of Romans. Now I say that Jesus Christ was a minister of the circumcision for the truth of God to confirm the promise made unto the fathers and that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. As it is written, For this cause I will confess to thee among the Gentiles and sing unto thy name. 
And again he saith, Rejoice ye Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord all ye Gentiles, and laud him all ye people. And again Isaiah saith, There shall be a root of Jesse, and he that shall rise to reign over the Gentiles. In him shall the Gentiles trust. Now the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace and believing that ye may abound in hope through the power of the Holy Ghost. So we have the writings of the Apostle Paul who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to quote Isaiah, the very passage of Scripture that we're reading about in Isaiah chapter 11 to confirm that he was speaking about the gospel age that we're living in today. In that day, in verse 10 is referring to the gospel age, And if it is, and it most certainly is, and it shall come to pass in that day, and verse 11 is also referring to the gospel age, we must consider the spiritual meaning of these verses or the new man of God that He has created in us will be robbed of the spiritual blessings that God has reserved for us in studying the Scriptures through the eyes of Christ our Savior. I take the liberty to quote Pastor Don Fortner from verse 11. Brother Don said, It shall come to pass in that day, in the day appointed and ordained by God from eternity, in the day of His grace, in this great dispensation of the grace of God, it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set His hand again the second time to receive the remnant of His, or to recover the remnant of His people. This is what God is doing in the world today. He is recovering the remnant of His people by the right hand of His grace. The theologians and commentators have written many different opinions about the historical event referred to in this passage. It may have reference to the time of Hezekiah's reign. It may allude to the deliverance of God's elect from Babylonian captivity. Without question, that was typical of the redemption of God's elect. But Hezekiah and Babylonians have been dead for a long, long time. So we do not need to be concerned about them. The prophet's eye here looks beyond Hezekiah to another far greater king, even the king of kings and lord of lords. Isaiah looks past the deliverance of Israel from Babylon to the deliverance of God's elect from the bondage of sin. He looks here for the coming of Him whose name is called Jesus who shall save His people from their sins. The passage before us is an inspired prophecy concerning the person and works of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great Savior. We know that it is because the Holy Spirit tells us so in Romans 15, 12. A part of that scripture I just quoted just a moment ago. Pastor Fordner ends this little article I'm sharing with you by saying, This passage of scripture is a prophecy of the sure and certain salvation of God's elect, throughout the world, through the merits of His Son and the gracious operations of His Spirit. And I say, Amen. And brethren, we're part of that. We're part of that great deliverance. If our faith is in Jesus Christ, if He has come to us while we were filled with hatred for Him, if He has come to us when we were dead in trespasses and sins, when we were spiritually blind, spiritually deaf, unable in and of ourselves to do anything about that terrible 
lost condition we were in, if He has come to us and has raised us from that horrible pit that we were in, then what we're reading about here in Isaiah 11 applies to us. And we, as God's enlightened children, have the honor and the privilege of meeting together on a regular basis to worship the One who loved us and gave Himself for us. And like I said earlier, don't take this lightly, please. This is not only serious as far as our relationship with God is concerned, it's also a wonderful opportunity and an honor that God has allowed us to be a part of. Verse 12 of our text says, And he shall set an ensign for the nations, and shall assemble the outcast of Israel, and gather together the dispersed of Judah from the four corners of the earth. Now I've mentioned that we'll look at the subject of an ensign, Lord willing, next Sunday. But the outcast of Israel and the dispersed of Judah is referring to God's elect, His remnant from, from this whole world, from the four corners of the earth. His outcasts are His chosen people who fell in Adam when He willfully, willingly transferred His close relationship with God right over to the devil. He went into that sin with His eyes wide open. He knew what He was doing. But even that is a picture of Christ. I don't know if you've ever considered this or not, but Adam loved his wife so much, he was willing to die for her. The Lord said to Adam, in the day that thou eatest, now he didn't say if you eat in that day. He said in the day. He knew that Adam would eat that forbidden fruit. He said in the day that thou eatest, Dying, thou shalt surely die, is the way it's worded in the original. He knew what he was doing. Adam had the commandment. But he loved his wife so much, he was willing to die for her rather than to be separated from her. Isn't that a picture of Christ? He, he loves us so much that He willingly went to that cross to lay down His life for us. Willingly allowed Himself to be separated from His Father rather than to be separated from us for all eternity. And if He had not gone to the cross and accomplished the redemptive work for us, there would be no hope for any of us. So we fell in Adam. When Adam sinned, we fell in Him. When we came into this world with Adam's fallen sinful nature with no divine nature, we had no hope, we had no spirit dwelling within us to give us that hope. We had no way of delivering ourselves from that awful condition, but God in His infinite mercy through the merits of Jesus Christ our Savior was pleased to come to us when we were running from Him and arrest us by sovereign love and bring us under the preaching of His Gospel and then bring us into a living union with Himself when He quickened us by the power of the Holy Spirit. What a wonderful God. 
What a wonderful God to express His love for us in such a way that He sent His Son to die for us that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And we quote this Scripture often, but it bears repeating. Here it is, love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation. That word means a sin-atoning sacrifice for our sins. And if God so loved us, brethren, we ought also to love one another. Now please don't miss the way our text is worded. Oh, how important it is to believe the Word of God as it is plainly set forth for our learning. Verse 11 tells us that God Himself shall set His hand upon His elect, that God Himself shall recover the remnant of His people. Verse 12 plainly states that it is God who shall assemble the outcast of Israel, that God shall gather together His people from the four corners of the earth. Absolutely nothing is mentioned about man's doing because man can do absolutely nothing to merit God's favor. If one stitch of the robe of righteousness, one thing of man's doings in the matter of salvation, the salvation of God's elect, if one thing enters in that man does, it destroys the whole meaning of the word grace. So it is not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy, He saved us by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. And folks, this whole world is filled with professing Christians. I'm not talking about the Buddhists. I'm not talking about those who are involved in Eastern religions. I'm talking about those who profess to be Christians. The whole world is full of them who deny the gospel of God's amazing grace. They turn a deaf ear to the truth. They just cannot let go of some little something or another that they can offer to God in exchange for their eternal soul. It's alright to believe on Jesus, but don't take that too far, they say. You can't take that too far, I say. It's either all of Christ or nothing. And God's enlightened children not only love the truths of the Gospel, not only hate the very idea of works, we abhor any doctrine that teaches Salvation by the works of man, and we'll have no part with that. We, we come out from among them. Now turn over, if you will, to Acts chapter 13. And I'll use this passage of Scripture as a closing passage for this morning's message. But let me, let me share some thoughts with you while you're turning there. Our text in Isaiah 11 verse 10 says, His rest shall be glorious. That, of course, is speaking of the rest of our Lord Jesus, the rest He entered into when He laid down His life for His chosen people. It would have said, their rest shall be glorious if it was referring to the rest we enter into when the miracle of the new birth is performed in our lives. But it says, His rest shall be glorious. And when our Lord, when He made that profound statement that we refer to often, it is finished. Just before He laid down His life for the sheep, He uttered those words. And when He did, when He laid down His life, 
he entered into his rest. The work of redemption was done. He entered into eternal rest. He entered into a perfect eternal rest, completely satisfied with what he had accomplished. He knew, our Lord knew, the promises made to him by his Father concerning the salvation of those he purchased with his own blood could not be disannulled, could not go unfulfilled. Our Lord Jesus knew He had saved His people. He knew He had reconciled us to His Father when He laid down His life for us. And He knew He had paid the ransom price in full for all of our sins, that He had redeemed us from all iniquity, that He had purged our sins from God's sight forever. Now before I read this closing passage of Holy Scripture from Acts 13, I address each one of us with these heart-searching personal questions. Do we believe God? Do we take Him at His word? Do we believe Jesus Christ is the God-man, our Creator? Do we believe He's our risen, sovereign Lord? Do we believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior? That He did save us by His perfect obedience to the will of God the Father, by the shedding of His blood, by laying down His life for us? Do we believe we have a full pardon from God for Christ's sake? Do we believe that Jesus Christ was delivered for our offenses, that He was raised again for our justification? Do we believe that all power in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus Christ, the God-man? That all things are under His feet? That He rules over this whole universe and everything in it for the glory of His name and for the good of His people? Do we believe that Jesus Christ is our blessed surety who has gathered us to Himself under the preaching of His gospel who will, by His own sovereign power, keep us from falling from grace, keep us from falling from His loving arms that He is able to keep us from falling and to prevent us before the presence of His glory with exceeding joy? Do we believe that He which hath begun a good work in us will perfect it until the day of Jesus Christ? If we believe these wonderful truths that are clearly set forth in the Word of God, true saving faith finds perfect rest in Christ and His finished work. We not only rest in Him, we cease from our own works as God did from His on the seventh day. He created everything in six days and the Word of God says on the seventh day He rested. Now God never got tired. The work of creation was complete. He ceased from His works of creation. Well, if we believe the Gospel, we lay down our weapons of warfare against God. We refuse, by God's grace, we refuse to be, like I said earlier, any part of a religious organization that teaches works for salvation. We have ceased from that. We have entered into the perfect rest that Jesus Christ has 
given to us through what he has accomplished for us at Calvary 2,000 years ago. Now follow along with me as I read these scriptures in Acts 13 starting at verse 38 and make a few comments. Paul is preaching and like I said earlier, he took his text from the Old Testament every time he preached. And he says in verse 38, Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man, through the God-man, through Jesus Christ, is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. That's what we preach. We preach that through Christ, He gives His people the forgiveness of sins. Not through Christ plus what we do, not through Christ plus anything, but through Christ. This is the message that all of God's preachers have. We preach Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He says in verse 39, And by Him, by this man, by Jesus Christ, the God-man, all that believe. Now that's why I ask those questions addressed to each one of us personally before I read it. And by Him, all that believe are justified from... Read it out loud with me. All things from which ye could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now like I said earlier, that law of Moses that was given to him by God on that mount oh, so many years ago was that first covenant. That was a, that, that's not the eternal covenant, which is actually the first, but that's the old covenant of works. And there's a curse pronounced under that. And it's not just those who are trying to justify themselves by keeping the Ten Commandments of Moses. It applies to all who are trying to justify themselves by any work. By any work. Jesus Christ has justified us from all things. All things. All of our sins were laid on Him. All of our iniquities, past, present, and future. We have a wonderful Savior who knew no sin, who became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. And it was God the Father who made Him to be sin for us. Now folks, this is very important because when Jesus Christ went to that cross, when God made Him to be sin for us, God has to punish sin. He has to. Either in the individual sinner or in a substitute. And Jesus Christ is our substitute. And when He hung there on that cross, crying out, My God, My God, why hast Thou forsaken Me? He was enduring the wrath of God for His people. And God is a just God. He cannot demand payment twice. First at My hand, and then at My Suffering Savior's hand? No, that's not possible. God could not do that. So we must run into the waiting arms of Jesus Christ. We must believe on Him according to how He is clearly set forth in the Holy Scriptures. If we try to believe on Jesus in any other way, we're believing in a different Jesus and we're still under the wrath of God. Flee to Him. Run to Him. Embrace Him as your only hope, as your Savior. He didn't try to save us. 
He saved us. And verse 39 says, By Him all that believe are justified from all things. All things. God Himself has justified us. That's why I said earlier, quoting Scripture, nothing can be laid to the charge of God's elect. You ever get tired of hearing that? It's only those who are steeped in their own self-righteous works that don't want to hear that blessed truth. They're willing, the Bible says, to justify themselves. They're going to rue the day that they ever had that kind of a thought in their mind. When this is all over, God's going to turn them into that lake of fire which burns forever and forever. But we've been delivered from that through the finished work of Jesus Christ our Savior. He redeemed us. He didn't make us redeemable. He's our Redeemer. He's our Savior. And it says in verse 40, Beware therefore lest that come upon you which is spoken of in the prophets. And they spoke of the prophets spoke this. Behold ye despisers and wonder and perish for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. You won't believe, even though God's preachers declare it unto you, unless God performs a miracle in your life. And I never get tired of saying this, but because it bears repeating. This religious generation and religious generations that have gone on before us have reduced the miracle of the new birth to a work that man performs. God abhors that. Every hell-deserving sinner that is brought out of darkness into the marvelous light of Jesus Christ is a miracle of God's saving grace. And this miracle that God performs in the hearts of His people moves us by the Spirit of Christ that dwells in us to give Him, the Lord Jesus Christ, all the praise and all the glory for what He accomplished back at Calvary 2,000 years ago. That's what He did for us. And what He accomplishes by revealing Himself to us by revealing His Gospel to us. That's what He performs in us. It's not only what He did for us, it's what He does in us. And Jesus Christ, the true and living God, will not share His glory with anyone. To God be the glory. Great things He hath done. Paul and the other apostles because they had been brought to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and boldly preached and testified of God's amazing grace, were the outcasts of Israel. I'm in that number, referring to spiritual Israel. We're God's elect, but national Israel hates the Gentiles as much today as they did the days they persecuted and killed the Gentiles thinking they were doing God a favor. All of God's enlightened children are considered outcasts, are despised and hated and pushed away by the ungodly people of this world. 
especially by self-righteous religions. But God has gathered us into the loving arms of Jesus Christ our Savior, and by His grace and His power working in us, we will continue to sing of His amazing grace for the glory of Jesus Christ our Lord and our Savior, because God Himself has gathered the outcasts of Israel's and in His loving arms and will not allow anything, anyone, any evil force of darkness separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. We're as sure of heaven as if we're already there. I never get tired of preaching this to you. I hope you don't get tired of hearing it. This is the Gospel Jesus Christ, our Creator, became a man and suffered the ignominious death of the cross to redeem us from all iniquity and make us acceptable in God's sight forever. And that article we read about the greater Joseph is so true. Not one thing will be brought up against us ever because of God's mercy through Christ Jesus our Savior. Let's sing of His amazing grace. Brother John, if you will, come and lead us in our closing hymn. Thank you, Pastor Gene.